Section 41 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide Part 18. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 17. Mrs. Jeffress recalled and examined by Mr. McVeigh. I saw Mr. Utterzook on the morning after he left our place. It was near nine o'clock. He was passing my house. It was the second of July. I did not notice anything particularly. He had his coat hanging across his shoulders. He passed through Jennerville towards Penn Station. I did not notice any change from the clothing he had when at our house the day before. Mrs. Sarah Campbell. I was at Mrs. Mullins in Delaware County in June 1872. I saw several strangers there. I cannot tell the names of any but the one, Wilson. I saw a man there who was called Wilson. I was there from dinner time until evening. We were in the same room, and I again saw him sitting on the porch, where I saw him from an open window. I saw him at another visit. I met him there twice. That was in November, I believe. It was in chestnut time. We were there until the next day after dinner. The photograph heretofore introduced in evidence by the Commonwealth, representing one person standing and another sitting, was handed to witness. I cannot recognize either of these men. I do not see a resemblance to anybody I have ever seen. Cross-examination. I am a sister of William E. Utterzook, the prisoner. Mother and Mrs. Mullen were old acquaintances, and Mother desired me and my children to go with her and see Mrs. Mullen. I was never there before. I have been since this matter occurred. Question. Did Mr. Wilson say in your presence that he knew William E. Utterzook? Mr. McVeigh. One moment. Whether or not he did or did not know, I object to the question, because it certainly is not evidence. In the first place, it is not cross-examination, and in the second place, it is not evidence as to the fact. We therefore object. The court. The question may be asked. Exception noted. In answer to the question, witness said, I cannot say that he did. The court. Have you any recollection? Witness. I cannot recollect his saying anything particularly. I do not remember the conversation. The conversation was all directed to my mother, and I did not have a conversation with him exactly to myself. I cannot say that he narrated any conversation about William, and I cannot say that he did not. I cannot say, because I do not exactly know, that is the reason. Witness further testified, I have been present in court during this trial this day week. Question. And you never saw either of the gentlemen in this picture? Witness. Oh, I was told who the one sitting down was. He was pointed out to me here. I would not have thought only as he was pointed out to me. Question. Describe this man Wilson to the jury, if you saw him sufficiently to do so. Witness. He was not a very tall man, nor was he remarkably short, but he was a fleshy man. 
He had dark hair, dark eyes, and no beard. He was a smooth-faced man. I cannot think of anything else that I noticed. Mr. Wilson's conversation was with my mother. They were talking about half an hour. Dr. Jacob Price. On the fourth day of last August, I made an examination of William E. Utterzook, at the instance of the district attorney, with a view of finding any marks of a struggle upon his person. It was a thorough examination of his whole person. We found no marks, no recent marks of any kind. To Mr. Hayes. This was more than a month after the alleged murder. A few witnesses were now examined with a view to impeach the character of Samuel Rhodes for truth and veracity. Robert A. Young lived about four and a half miles from Rhodes, had known him about three years, and testified that the character Rhodes bore in the neighborhood is not so good. On cross-examination, he said that he had not heard his character for truth-telling the subject of remark. John Townsend had known Rhodes about a year, had heard his character for truth was not very good. On cross-examination, he said he had not heard any question of Rhodes's character that he could recollect of, prior to Rhodes's testimony in this case having been published. The court said, Information based upon that is not evidence. Samuel Mayers had known Rhodes about a year and a half. In answer to the question whether he knew of Rhodes's reputation for truth and veracity in the community, witness said that he did not know it to be very bad. He had never heard a great deal. He never heard any reports upon the subject before this case. Rittenhouse Mayers lived about one and a half miles from Jennerville. Rhodes's reputation for truth and veracity was not so good. He had never heard it questioned before this case occurred. Harvey Jordan. I live a quarter of a mile north of Penningtonville. I have lived there ten years. I was past Bears Woods the second day of July, between the hours of eleven and twelve o'clock. I saw a horse hitched to the fence. I saw a man some fifteen or twenty feet off, coming through the woods to the road, towards the horse and wagon. He was getting over the fence just as I was opposite the hind end of his wagon. He was just opposite where the body was afterwards found, between the road and where the body was found. He had an open wagon, what we call a mill wagon. I do not know who the man was, I never saw him before nor since. Cross-examination. It was an open, small wagon. I noticed nothing in it. There was nothing particular about the man to notice at the time. I lived within a quarter of a mile of that place one year, and I have frequently gone there, and frequently have seen people hitch their horses to the fence there, and go into the woods for a short time, and come out again. There was nothing remarkable about it in any way. Joseph Harper. I live in Cochranesville. I came past Bears Woods on the night of July 1st, between 10 and 11 o'clock, as nearly as I can tell. I was riding in a small, open wagon. I did not see anybody as I went past the woods. I saw nothing to attract my attention. I saw no fire. I saw no horse and wagon hitched there. I heard no sounds of any kind, no voices. I cannot tell exactly the time, but it was from ten to twelve o'clock. Cross-examination. I was on my way home from Penningtonville. I had been to a store there. 
It was half-past nine when I left the store. On my return, I stopped at Mr. Harvey's and stayed there a couple of hours. I suppose I heard the clock there strike ten or eleven. I know it did not strike twelve. I heard a wagon drive past on a trot when I left the house. This house was about a mile from Bear's Woods. It may have been a little after eleven o'clock then. A little evidence was now offered in support of the good character of the prisoner. Andrew Shalady knew Utterzook twenty-three years ago when he came into the neighborhood where the witness lived. The prisoner was then about sixteen years of age. He remained there six or seven years, and then went to Baltimore. While he lived in the neighborhood of the witness, the character of Utterzook was good, for anything the witness ever knew or heard of him. Since that time, the witness had known nothing about it. For the last ten years, witness knew nothing of his character. David Mullen knew Utterzook as a boy, and had known him since. His character was good while he lived in the family of witness. He was a good boy what time he was there. Within two or three years, witness did not know anything about him. On cross-examination, witness said he could not speak of Utterzook's character since he was about twenty-one. John W. Butler had known Utterzook since about 1867 when he came to work for him. All the time Utterzook worked for witness, he was very industrious and of good character. Witness had heard him spoken of, and had always heard he had a good character. Mr. Pardue, addressing the court, said, We are in the unfortunate position of not having our witnesses from Baltimore that we expected. We will offer in evidence the pictures of the remains that were taken at Penningtonville, also a picture of Mr. W. S. Goss taken some six years ago. The defense here closed. The Commonwealth, in rebuttal, called several witnesses in support of the character of Rhodes for truth and veracity. Dr. Bailey lived within a mile of Rhodes since 1866 and had never heard it questioned. Robert H. Brown had known him at least ten years and had never heard his character or reputation for truth-telling talked of. Dr. J. J. Gibson had known him since 1861, and testified that his reputation was good, never heard it questioned. Hugh Rambo Esquire had never heard it questioned. He had known Rhodes fifteen years. John K. Malone had known Rhodes fifteen years, and knew his reputation for truth and veracity to be good, had never heard his word doubted. Thomas Martin had known Rhodes ten years at least, and never heard it questioned. Charles Reese had known Rhodes over twenty years, and never heard his reputation for truth-telling questioned. Samuel Shannon had known Rhodes twenty-five years, and never heard anybody doubt his word, never knew it questioned. Evidence Closed Mr. Perdue opened the argument of the prisoner's case in a lengthy speech to the jury, from which we shall be able to make but a few brief extracts. May it please the court and gentlemen of the jury, I had hoped that the Commonwealth might open this case and tell their theories and give their proofs and points. They have waived their right, and the duty falls on me. It is a grave one, and I recognize its responsibilities. I shall go over the testimony as briefly as the circumstances will allow. 
I don't know that I need to go over it minutely. The first testimony offered has shown you an accurate plan of Penningtonville and the vicinity, on which was found, on July 11th last, the body of an unknown man. We will consider the testimony of those who first saw it. Gainer P. Moore comes upon the stand, as you have seen, eager to testify, and with a show of importance that on him rests the burden of this case. People see these buzzards every day without thinking of anything remarkable. Do the prosecution believe that it is one of the fatalities of the case, that when he saw them he went over into the woods? I do not ask you to throw suspicion on any man, or to say that anyone has committed murder, but I call your attention to the remarkable evidence of Moore, the confidant of Rhodes, who passed a number of houses and went to hunt Rhodes, who came back with him to where this festered body lay. They only stayed there half a minute, raised it up and looked at the face. Then they dropped it down and rushed to the road. They say they heard a wagon passing. Men are not so easily disturbed under such circumstances. When Gaynor Moore got to the road, he found that Rhodes was close to his heels. They did not go back for another look, but started for the coroner. This body had been lying ten or twelve days in this grave. The birds had torn what little dirt there was on the body off it. The inside portions were gone and decayed. A liquid mass filled that skin. But they raised it in midsummer, on a broiling July day. But, says Moore, the face was white like a dead man's, with the pallor of death on its features, and that any one could have recognized those pale, deathly features. I don't say it is not so, I leave it in your hands. It is yours to weigh, mine to present. This was the first testimony hurled into the jury box. I will divert to consider the testimony of Rhodes as far as this matter is concerned. The first time he put the shovel down, he brought up the shirt. A wonderful coincidence. He does not say the face was white. It was enough for one witness to prove this fact. The Commonwealth did not need his testimony on this. They let that fact go. He didn't say it was to be recognized. He was not there to make out that part of the case. Then Esquire Rambo was called. He is the judicial officer who has been trying this case for the last three months. He lays the broad foundation of the case. I have not a word to say against Mr. Rambo. I have known him for years. I do not doubt he has believed all the time what he testified. But you must remember the terrible excitement in Penningtonville when this body was found. They were not used to such excitement. The whole town rushed down to the grave and sat on the coroner's jury and listened with breathless interest to hear all the witnesses. Recollect they are human, creatures of circumstances, their minds to be swayed by prejudices and feelings. The testimony of those who have taken an active part in getting evidence must be warped in judgment and exaggerated in statement. This is human nature. We all do it. This was four months since, and all the circumstances have been talked over among them. I say it is not unnatural that the judgment of these people is not as safe as that of those not close to the circumstances surrounding the case. There was a man insured in Baltimore, in four companies, to the amount of twenty-five thousand dollars. 
On February 2, 1872, this man was burned in his shop on the York Road. Of course, his family made application to the companies for the insurance. The preliminary proof was made by disinterested persons. They refused to pay the money. Suit was brought, and a verdict was obtained by Mrs. Goss. Immediately there was a motion made by these companies for a new trial. While this motion was pending, this murdered body was found in Bear's Woods. Then the creatures of these insurance companies came up to see about it. The insurance companies know that Utterzook is a very important witness in this trial, in which there is $25,000 at stake. They have a very strong interest in this trial. You all know how such an interest will prejudice men. If Utterzook should die, they will win their case. Acquit Utterzook, and he goes to Baltimore to testify against these corporations. Their case would then be lost. Therefore, they want a new trial with Utterzook's part left out. They then have out of the way an important witness. David R. Mullen tells us that a man came to his house June 22, 1872. The man gave the name of A.C. Wilson. He came on a Saturday and went to Philadelphia and came back with a bag. He described him as having a smooth, round face. He let his whiskers grow. He identifies the picture. Says it looks like him. Two men often look alike, don't they? We often speak to people, mistaking them for somebody else. This picture was shown him with Mr. Langley scratched out. When the picture was shown, the lower part of the face was covered up, and then the question was asked whether they didn't recognize Goss. But if this same thing is done to Langley's picture, it looks as much like the picture of Goss as two pairs. Mr. Mullen tells you that he got a letter from Utterzook some six or eight months before the fire. Utterzook was raised with Mr. Mullen, and if he should know anyone who wanted board in the country, was it not natural that he should think of Mullen the first one? Six months after this, a man, who said he was from Baltimore, came there to board. What connection is there between this man and Goss? They have been trying to impress you that Utterzook was trying to make arrangements for Goss to go into retirement. But there was nothing remarkable in Utterzook's sending this man there. He knew they took boarders, and was anxious to do them a service. Mrs. Toombs tells us all she knows about this man, and a little more. She is absolutely certain that she knew his habits, his clothing, his valise, where he got his liquor, how often he drank, and how often he was drinking, what paper he read, his associates, when and how often and to what degree he was intoxicated. She saw him address one letter to Mrs. Eliza Arden. She probably thought she was telling us that he wrote a letter to his wife, as she may have gathered the impression that that was the family name of his wife. But it happens that the family name of Mrs. Goss was Stewart. I much fear this good woman, in her desire to further the cause of justice, has overstepped the mark. Mr. Toombs, who had never read the papers, didn't care whether Wilson was dead or alive. He saw Utterzook come, and heard Wilson call him doctor or something. He remembers that morning of the 11th of May perfectly, just as well as he remembers the features of Utterzook, 
just as well, and not a bit better. Mrs. Toombs would seem to have lately given up this admirable boarding-house, and I have no doubt it was a good one. It may have been because of this excitement and her extended field of usefulness. Then they all talked about this picture, which had been sent them, and O'Donnell had a picture, and Mrs. Toombs had a picture, and they would all look at them and talk about them, these pictures with Langley crossed off, that the witness might not mistake his picture for Wilson. Then comes the witness Reeve. It is perfectly delightful to find such memories as these Newark witnesses have. We have no such minds here. Then Edward Sutton testified. He recollected the valise and recognized the ring. He was a jeweler and had examined it carefully. He thought the ring had been bent since Wilson had it, and you will remember Engel testified Goss's ring was bent when he had it in Baltimore. The witness Williams next came. He was also from Christopher Street. He bade Wilson goodbye when he left Newark, and says he had no baggage with him. Here again the Commonwealth's witnesses do not agree, and they should make them consistent. This witness, a jeweler, was a remarkable man. He was able to give the nationality of rings, and could tell the nation of the men who made them. He even knew the relative influence a residence here would produce on the workmanship. I must remark the breadth and extent of his mind. Mr. Perdue commented similarly upon the manner and character of nearly all the witnesses produced by the state, throwing doubt upon their testimony and impressing upon the jury the fact that the prisoner was entitled to the benefit of everything which looked doubtful. His entire argument occupied nearly four hours. The Honorable Wayne McVeigh, the senior counsel for the defense, then addressed the jury in an eloquent and fervent appeal in behalf of the prisoner. The argument of the distinguished counsel was directed to the inherent improbabilities of the case, and he made the most of all that could be turned in any way to the advantage of his client. He was listened to with marked attention by the jury, the court, and the mass of spectators which filled every available place in the spacious courtroom. End of section 41